0: and a very warm welcome to Series 6 of the Hey! Festival podcast. We're here to share highlights from recent festival events as well as backstage discussions with some of your favourite writers and thinkers on the nuances and interests that shape their work. This week we hear from gardener, broadcaster and writer Alan Titchmarsh. We'll start with a section of his event with Alex Clark talking about his recent novel The Gift. This is a moving conversation about reflecting your life in fiction and the people who shape you, as well, of course, as sharing his passion for gardening.
1: To go back to my, my English teacher at school, Miss Weatherall, Yes. there was a moment at which I realised the power of words. We were asked to write a prairie of the plot on Midsummer Night's Dream, um, which I did, page and a half. And at one point in it, I said... Um, you know the pot where the lovers get all muddled up and Lysander and Hermia are meant to be together and, and Helena and Demetrius. And then somebody takes a potion and they fall in love with the other one. Um, and I said, um, Helena is in love with Lysander, but her love is not reciprocated. 15, OK? Anyway, at the bottom it said in red ink, see me. Oh, so I went to red words. see her... I said, Miss, she said, this word here, reciprocated. I said, yes. She said, what does it mean? I said, well, it means she loves him, but he doesn't love her back. Where did you find that word? I said, well, I don't, I don't know. I just, just know it. I like words. Mm, eight out of ten. Four. Anyway, fast forward to not slightly soiled, but trial and error, <laughs> where I wrote about <laughs> Miss Weatherall in the book. And, said, and she wrote me a letter and she said, um, the only reason I'm not suing you... <laughs> ..is that you can afford to lose and I can't. (laughs) And then, bless her, she said, "Um, "I actually, I don't think I was a terribly good teacher. And I... Oh, it was was heartbreaking. And I wrote back to her and said, don't in any way reproach yourself, because maybe if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done what i have done, because I... Yes. Maybe it gave me it. the push. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we made our piece, which is no longer with us now. But, and it was oh the most heartbreaking God. letter. Is that is
2: the most extraordinary thing, isn't it? You yeah. write memoirs and you've written various volumes mm. of memoirs. And of course, people may get in touch. Well, or there's they one... may, you know, but of course, it doesn't happen with novels, does it?
1: But... Well, no, but it does with memoirs. Mm. I'd, I'd, when I wrote the first novel, I, I wrote about like, my first girlfriend, Rosemary. Um, and it's the first time I'd ever felt that complete flip in the stomach, you know, young love. Oh God, oh, that kind of, you know. Um, and we went out for about three months, and then and it fizzed out. But I'd never forgotten her, and I wrote very briefly in the book, nothing embarrassing at all about it. And I was in doing a signing session in a, I was in Cheshire somewhere, and there was a queue, and I and, and were signing books, and I, and I look, and it's usually the first question is who for, and you look up and you go. Who for? Rosemary, oh. and this is a, a, a. She would have been. She must have been getting on for 60, but I knew it was her. And she said hello, and she's married with boys, and and I, even now I'm feeling. I mean, oh, Gary. Anyway, and, and I said, how are you? She said, I'm all right, thank you. Can you? I said, yes, of course. Rosemary, <laughs> lots of love, Alan, and and I gave her the book. She thanked thank you. And She turned and she and she walked four paces away, and she turned back. and She said, thank you for page 94. Oh. oh, Alan. Yeah, so that was rather sweet, wasn't it? Yeah. So oh, yeah. good
2: things happen when you are about Good things, things your life happen as when you Well asking. as yes. letters threatening to sue you from old.
1: Yeah, <laughs> from old C. <laughs> oh, that
2: was a lovely story. Yeah, Thank you for sharing yeah. it. I can see it's, it. means a lot to yeah, you yeah. to remember yeah. that now.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but it's funny, isn't it? I mean, one of the things again that is is addressed in this. I've got to finish it. An,
1: um, she died a year ago
2: Oh, Alan.: Yeah. So, so that was quite.:
1: But at least well, we, had had that, an we had that we had that moving yeah. moment. Yeah.
2: But you must feel glad that that had yeah. there
1: was that moment. Really glad. And it's going to, with the gift and the, the, the monk who comes into the gift, mm. Brother Wilfrid, it's nice to have a voice. You, you find yourself... I, I always think you reveal much more about yourself in fiction than you do almost in autobiography because you are every character as they are speaking. You have to inhabit the person who is holding the dialogue at that moment. And I became Brother Wilfred and I became... Um, Luke, the father, and I became Bethany, the mum, you know, when you're writing mm. that, because you have to inhabit them and be that person, similarly with Adam. Um, and Brother Wilfred is a very wise man, and but not not smug and pious, to use your very accurate word. Um, and it's quite fun, sometimes you think, oh, actually, he's terribly wise, isn't it? Yes, where's it coming from? It's not you, is it? It's clearly some <laughs> somebody else is channeling anyway. There. So it's lovely to have disparate characters as well as... Cheeky ones like Bell Barclay, the report. It
2: is that. It is funny that this novel, you know, it's set in the point is it's remote and that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they worry that they're bringing up this only child mm-hmm. and will he have enough of life and enough of people? Blow me if it's not one of the busiest remote hill farms I've ever (laughs) read. There's a monk (laughs) comes across and there's people. He only comes
1: once a year for a night.
2: Well, well, I suppose we know about that night. Then there's a kind of the wonderful man who comes to help all the time. Then there's the sheep shearers flashing their skirts. I mean, it's all, it's all go. You make very good saleswoman. (laughs) <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, you don't really abandon them there. There's a whole cast of characters. There is a cast but, of characters. And it, it wasn't your upbringing, of course, was it? You didn't have a,
1: a rural or farming. Well, I was in the town, upbringing. and the moors are there, and it the woods there. are there, and the rivers in the bottom. So, yes. no, it wasn't, it wasn't remote. But, but
2: did you have to find out a lot about sheep, though?
1: Yes. Well, I, I, I sent Amanda Owen a copy of the book. I know, Amanda. Yes. I haven't heard back from her yet. And it was some weeks ago I sent it to her. She's probably been kind and said, oh, that's wrong, oh, that's wrong. I did ring her up. There's one thing that happens in the book, which you know, but I won't say. Um, I needed to find out... No, I can't even tell you that. But anyway, I need to find something out. And I rang her up and I said, are you in are you a fit place to talk? She says, I'm crouching underneath the wall and it's raining on me, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> there she was, the Yorkshire Shepherdess, who was very helpful. <clears throat>
2: One thing I, I wanted to ask you about, you, you know, you've been sort of touching on the way that you think modern society is going, and in some ways, failing perhaps the younger generation and being a difficult place. And we've become very divided. And you, you now live in the south of England and mm. have done for a long time. It's evidently meant a lot to you to write about Yorkshire and you, you go there. And, uh, this vision of a sort of disunited England, or British Isles, mm. does that worry you? Because mm. you're, you're yeah. very much into sort of local communities of all sorts and they've been a lot of your work has been, has been dealing with them.
1: I worry really, I worry about anger and discontent, I think more than almost anything in that I've I've done various jobs job, not, well jobs uh, various I was high sheriff of the Isle of Wight for a year and I was um, chancellor of Winchester University for six years so meeting students meeting people on the island of the second term there, um, and you realize that this country is basically run by volunteers I mean look at Hay Festival mm. so many volunteers running it and we are this country we are the people And sometimes I think our voice is... Do you remember Penelope Keith in The Good Life and she goes to the town hall to complain? And she said, who do you think you are? And she said, I am the silent majority I am. (laughs) And I sometimes think we're all a bit like that. We feel powerless to make a difference, which is why I'm intent via gardening and countryside to show that if that's all you got and you make that bit better, it joins up with... Your bit there, your bit there. We can all do our bit. And I think it's the God of small things, really. It's trying to encourage people... To realize that they can make a difference where they are. Mm. And if you take care, the worst, one of the worst phrases ever coined was NIMBY, not in my backyard. If you're not looking after your backyard, who on earth is? Mm. You know, we should be proud of trying to, yes, we've all got to take responsibility either for refugees or for, you know, building new houses. (laughs) We can't all have the purest of lives, but we can try and do our bit to make sure that our area is. Is we are good custodians of it, particularly mm. in the natural world, and it's handed on in in better condition than it was when we came. Really,
2: I'm very interested in you. You, you mentioned uh, when we were talking backstage about gardening, and you you mentioned that you used that word custodian mm. uh, to me. When I was I was sort of tearing my hair out about various things to do in my own garden, and that are getting away from me. And you said, "Do just be a custodian." Mm. and for, for you, that has got a link with the earth, hasn't it? Oh, it's I mean, it's not. It's lots of other things besides. But it's, but it's mainly earth. I'm really interested in how that has related to things that you've done in your career, where you've been talking to people with kind of backyards mm. that might be sort of, you know, 50 foot long or something or smaller. Mm. Y- you still mean that people can have ownership over this little patch and yes. a relationship with it? Don't and
1: they you? can make a difference to it. Mm. And it can make a difference to them, which is the whole, what, it's what Love Your Garden is predicated on. You know, Tuesday nights, RTV, making gardens for people whose lives will be changed as a result. People who've either been so busy doing things for other folk, that they, or, or they've not got any money, or they're, they're physically unable to do their garden. And we find out what would really change their life mm. and make a garden, however small, that will, and, and as you know, you need your Kleenex for most yes, episodes of it. Absolutely. Because it's so moving. And it, just, it justifies my feeling about the importance of land. I think that the thing I find quite difficult is, is, is not berating people. I don't want to harangue folk and lecture them about it. I just want to show by virtue of how good it makes me feel and what good it does when you make somebody a gun. Just look at that. If it does that for them, it could do it for you, couldn't it? Don't matter you don't know a Latin name, forget them, you know. Stop worrying about weeds, just, you know, enjoy being in it. Enjoy watching what it does and learn how it works. And it's, I mean, it's what's kept me sane, really, and continues to be a kind of touchstone. I love, I, I, it's very hard to sit in the garden when you're a gardener. I I manage sometimes, I'll I'll take a cup of coffee out, you know, and I'll go and I'll... And I did yesterday, this is me, yesterday afternoon, and I, oh, it's a cup of tea, this is lovely. What's that? That You know, my personal best is about ten seconds, but I do keep going back, and I now try and make myself sit and look, and, yeah.
2: Well, one of the wonderful things about gardening, that it's only sort of realised as I, I... done it a bit more and more, is that you have a relationship with it and you do things to it, but if you're suddenly away for a bit or you're overwhelmed with doing other things, mm. it does stuff itself. It's yeah. not totally dependent on you, is it? It, no. will, it has a mind and a life of its own. I would
1: tell you a story out there. It's, um, the, the lovely story of the vicar who walked past the garden and it was glorious, and the stripy lawn and dahlias and marrows and runner beans and... Glorious, all kinds of beautiful things. And the vicar leaned over and he saw the gardener bent down in among it. And, and the vicar said, Isn't it wonderful what God can do in a garden? And the gardener said, Yes, it is. You should have seen what it was like when he had it to himself. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, there's an awful lot of talk at the moment about rewilding. Now, I have a two-hour, a two-acre piece of land that I bought off the farmer 12 years ago mm-hmm. to make a wildflower meadow. So I have a, and I sewed it by hand with a bucket, two acres, and I have the blisters on my legs to prove it to this day, I think. Um, and I love wildflowers. Um, and there's this big rewilding movement at the moment. I like a cultivated garden and my bit of wildflower meadow. And if you have a tiny garden, have a corner for wildflowers and stuff. But... <laughs> Don't disparage people who like order. We talk about how gardens help mental health. Gardens help my mental health um, by being beautiful, but also I'm quite an orderly man. And I I like stripes on my lawn and I like wildflowers in my meadow. The two are not mutually exclusive. And I'm getting a little rattled at the moment with everybody who thinks that... Any cultivated garden is irresponsible. I've been organic for 40 years. My garden is teeming with life, particularly bloody rabbits at the moment. (laughs) Anyway, that aside, so my garden is teeming with wildlife. I use no chemicals, nothing, not even in my striped lawn. It gets blood, bone and fish meal twice a year, and that's its lot. And it's green and it's striped, And it's this fact that, no, you must let it all go. Oh, rubbish! Yes. Um, you know... You want to visit,
2: sit in y- and have your cup of tea, Yes. Don't you? yes. Um,
1: both. Have a bit of both. But it doesn't have to be one or the other.
2: And, Alan, it's not just the beauty when you see it, it's not just the order, it's also the process, isn't
1: it? I mean, Oh, yes.
2: I mean, the, actual the, doing. the doing. And somebody is... said to me,
1: oh, yes, but I mowed my lawn this week and I'm going to have to do it again next week. So, yes, isn't it fab? You can get the <laughs> same sense of satisfaction every week, twice a week at this time of year if you want. You've got... It's like, you know, if you're a fisherman, you like or you don't mind, sitting on a riverbank. That's why they call it fishing, not catching. Right? <laughs> so if, if you don't... like, You know, learn to get out of the process. And it takes some people... Some people never get it, um, gardening, or why you would... Oh, I mean, weeds. I just enrich my soil with compost, plant things very close together, and there's no room for weeds. Mm. I, I pull the odd one out here, and I don't spend my life weeding. Um, it, it, it's, it's getting... Is training yourself to understand what you can get out of this. And yes, mowing a lawn is relatively mindless. Apart from the fact that you've got to keep a straight line. You know, if you're going... If, if you like your stripes, like I do. If you don't, you're not bothered, that's fine. Um, but learn what it will give you. And it will let your mind... You know, novel ideas come when mm. I'm mowing the grass. Uh, but I, <laughs> I... I decided when I was 10 that I wanted to be a gardener. I don't think I would ever imagined, Well, either. I would have been allowed to be, um, B, that I would have carried on doing it as long as I'm doing it, and C, that the joy would just get larger. I'm never happier than when I'm out there on my own, pottering in the garden. And I potter. I don't double dig anymore. I used to double dig for exams, so I proved I could do it. But I, don't, yeah. you know, I, I try and make gardening pleasurable for myself. And I do look at... I, I can look at it better if I'm walking around it, rather than just sitting and I'm training myself but I love my garden and I love being in it. To watch or listen
0: to Alan's full event you can sign up to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward hayplayer Now after his event Alan and I sat down to have a chat about his life outside of the nine to five starting with his earliest memory of gardening
1: I think it would certainly the work being on my grandfather's allotment has always been an image I've kept. I have a little tiny black and white photograph which perhaps triggers it And there's my granddad. It it would have been about 1950. Uh, He wore a dark trilby, uh, a a collarless shirt with a stud and a black waistcoat. He had a walrus moustache. He was a sort of old-fashioned looking granddad, which indeed he was in those days. Um, And he's leading this little, tiny, barely walking child with baggy bloomers through his sweet peas. And I can remember it. I I can see the sun glinting off the cocoa tin lids that he used to hang up among his sweet piece to frighten the sparrows away uh... and so that's my earliest memory and it's of being happy being outdoors i think really and i suspect that that no pun intended sowed the seeds of a life outside um... although it was yorkshire which is not the warmest of counties and it certainly <laughs> wasn't in the fifties um, we had the fields to play in the moors the woods the riverside um... just that aspect of it was idyllic, you know.
0: Could you, do you get that kind of come back when you smell sweet peas? Such a-
1: yes, and wallflowers. He used to have wallflowers up by the side of his the little path to his front door. So yes, yeah, sweet peas I guess. but particularly from wallflowers because they were outside his house. Um, and a lot of people don't grow wallflowers anymore. And they have this particularly, <sighs> it's a difficult scent to describe wallflowers, but it is an old fashioned scent. Um, and it certainly takes me back, you know, 70 years.
0: Would you say, is your granddad kind of your biggest influence then for getting into that?
1: Bit? I think then he probably was way back. And my mum liked it as well. She potted. My dad hated it. I never really knew why. He was a plumber. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until after I started doing it for a living that he confessed that both his father and his grandfather had both been gardeners. Uh, made him weed for a penny a bucket and he thought this is no job for anyone with half a brain and there's no money in it, you know. So when he found that I could actually go to Q and be trained, it was quite a surprise to him. And, but I didn't know, so it was clearly in the blood or in the sap. Um, but, yeah, I think then the fact that I could sow seeds when I was in nine or ten and they would come up was very encouraging and take cuttings and root them. And he's, there's nothing like a bit of success or whatever you do to make. Like, oh, I don't quite like this, you know, so I've stuck with it.
0: Did your dad get into it after you'd sort
1: of... Oh, no, he was delighted to hand over the spade. No, as I said, Mum always liked it, but it, it wasn't... And it was her dad who had the allotment, my mother's father. Because uh, my dad's dad, although he'd been a freshman, he was dead by the time I was born. he died quite young. Um... So no, Dad just thought, "Oh, if she's going to do it, I'm very happy. It. i not have to do it. <laughs> I've got my grandfather's spade, and my dad used it after my grandfather. But my dad used it to mix concrete. And in the very top of the spade, there's still little tiny bits of cement. That um. they're my dad, and the fact that the blade is is polished by myself and my grandfather is." It's a sort of family heirloom now.
0: Oh, that's so lovely. Do you do you ever use that on any shows or?
1: I do. I have done. It. It's in my shed. And I still use it. I don't do anything too strenuous with it. It'd break my heart if I broke it. Yeah. But I can dig holes for you know potatoes, and I dig my potato trenches with it, things like that.
0: Um, is there a, a project that stands out for you that you would have been sort of most surprised that you got to work on if you were told at the beginning of your career?
1: Uh, I'm Making a garden for Nelson Mandela. I mean, that just stuff of dreams, really. Um, we did it for the millennium it was a sort of special ground force garden for the millennium in 2000 and they said who would you like to make a garden for well the queen mother was going to be a hundred but she'd got lots of gardens and people were making gardens for her um so i said well, i'd love to make one for nelson mandela and they all laughed and said oh yeah wouldn't we all you know and then they made inquiries and they found someone who knew someone who knew someone who'd been in prison with him and it was so you know word went out to South africa and, and we finally, I ended up with a phone call to Mrs Mandela from my garden shed to South Africa explaining what we wanted to do, and she just kept saying, "Uh uh-huh. hmm uh hmm and I thought, this isn't, this isn't going at all well. And I got to the end, and I said, well, what do you think? And she said, I think it sounds a fantastic idea. And so there we are. We went and made it for him, and he came back and he saw it, and I sat down and chatted to him for half an hour and interviewed him. And he said, I'll take care of this garden for as long as I can. He said, I don't know whether you appreciate just how much plants mean to me. He said, because when I was in Robin Island, the only two things in my life that I had any control over were two tomato plants. Wow. And I grew them in the corner of the prison yard. And one took sick and I tried all kinds of things to make it better. And it died. Couldn't stop it and die. He said, I took it out and I walked it over to the other side of the prison yard and I gave it to bury And." He said so you probably understand what plants mean to me. It's terribly moving. Wow. Um, and he signed my book. We were told he didn't sign things anymore. He'd been asking, and we so we didn't ask and at the end he said if any of you've got anything you want signed, sign, have a delight to sign it. So I had a copy of the Long Walk to Freedom and he signed it for Alan, a competent and caring journalist. Wow. And Mandela said, so if anybody ever tells me I'm incompetent, it. well actually,
0: <laughs> I've got a, a
1: written affidavit from Nelson <laughs> Mandela that says I'm competent.
0: That is amazing. How, how long ago was that?
1: 2000s, it's 22 years ago.
0: Okay. Have you been back to it? since?
1: No, I've not. No, and I don't know, you know, the, now that he's gone, I don't know who lives in the house. Or, mm. But we, we put the millstone that his mother used to grind corn on. We upended it at the end of a little narrow rill and walked a course and and put it there to remind him of his childhood. And I went to Robben Island and saw the cell that he was in. There's nothing, I don't think anything more powerful than... I was given the key to his cell in my hand and they said, do you want the key? Let yourself in. And you look at this piece of metal in your hand that that kept Nelson Mandela from the world for 27 years and then walk into this little grey Square box, nine foot square, with a blanket and a bucket in the corner, and a little tiny window high up. You think this was his world for so long? Um, very moving, but the most generous, spirited of men. And I said, "But why aren't you bitter?" And he said, "There's no time. There's too much to do." And I think when you meet people like that, they do influence you. And you think, "What right have you got to moan or to complain or to just get on?"
0: Um outside of gardening then, because obviously it must be quite a blurred line for you between work and your personal life, because it's, it kind of is a hobby for many people. It's a, it's a really great excuse to be outside and, and enjoying yourself in and out of work. But is there anything else that you sort of de- dedicate much time to outside of that? I know you, you used to be a chorister.
1: Oh, I sang, yes. I used to be in the church choir, yeah. And then I joined, I met my wife in an operatic society, so I've always sung for pleasure. I haven't sung much lately. Uh, but I, do that. I'm, I I potter about, I've got an old car, a couple of old cars that I mess about with. I, I But I garden, I do, I'm that boring person whose hobby <laughs> happens to be his work as well. And I'm never happier than when I'm out there pottering. Uh, and just being in it and making, beautifying the earth really. I mean, gardeners are in the beauty business as well as the natural history business. Mm. It's up to us to take care of nature. Mm. But it's also, you know, we try and beautify the earth. And I like creating beautiful scenery. It's very satisfying to do that. It's good for the spirit and good for the soul. And I think most people have discovered a lot who didn't know before lockdown what a garden can give you in terms of solace and a sense of proportion and perspective. And it is the ultimate reality, really. That carries on, spite of all our overlays of the problems that we manufacture. You know.
0: Do you um? Do you ever feel like? your gardening is a nuisance to people or annoys anyone do you ever get kind of wrapped up with addicted to staying out until it's dark doing
1: something <laughs> <or>? <laughs> um, I have a wife who's very keen on sport uh, and then now that we're into June just sort of May anyway we were in uh, and the nights are, the days are longer and it's light uh, longer into the evening yeah, I do tend to stay. Out. She was watching football the other night. We have role reversal in our house. You was, do. And the yes. wife who does the gardening and the mother watches the football. <laughs> no, it's the other way around in our household. So I was, and, and I kept looking at her. Right, All right, with well, this. And then last night, we, she gave up in the end. Last night, it was Nadal <laughs> and Djokovic playing tennis. And I went up to bed. And she, she, she'd gone up about 10 minutes before me and it was on the box. And she said, I can't take any more, I'm going to sleep now. So, <laughs> so she was, she, yeah, so she's very sporty, you know, very interested in sport. So that's quite funny. She plays tennis. So, yeah, so it's row reverse. I remember once, I can't remember what, why, but I was, uh, I'm not an, a needleman or a woman or anything like that, but I remember I was sewing a button on something and my wife was watching football and we had a great laugh to ourselves. This was complete row <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's excellent. <laughs> Um, do you have any kind of routines in your working life when you're, when you're working on certain things? That...
1: Um, I'm, a, I'm a lark rather than an owl. I get up early, uh, generally up, up at six, seven o'clock. Um, and I've always made my wife a cup of tea, first thing. Um, and, but I, I like to sit down and be at my laptop certainly by nine, latest, by the time I've fed the birds and looked around the garden and whatnot. But nine o'clock sitting down, if, I'm, if it's not a telly day so writing is always in the morning and generally by about one o'clock, certainly if I'm writing fiction I'm pretty spent, I can do about four hours and do two or three thousand words which is pretty clean copy, I started life, my journalistic life as an editor so I, I learnt how to Structure, you know, and what was that? So I had to write fairly clean copy. So I, if I'm writing, I write in the morning and I'll treat myself to gardening in the afternoon or, or doing whatever else I want to do. Uh, broadcasting days are very, very particularly for Love Your Garden. I have to travel, mm. so I'll travel early in the morning to an inspirational garden, then go on to the garden what we're doing, um, and have a couple of days doing that at the end of the when they've done the hard landscaping. I don't need to be there for the flag laying. I go for the the door knock mm. and finish, and then the team goes in and clears it and starts lake paving. And then the final two days, I turn up and start the planting. Um, So that's being away from home. So telly's is quite different like that. I love your weekend. We film about 15 minutes from where I live, which is lovely. So I I like now being at home as much as I can. I've got a lovely house and garden, and I don't really want to spend days away anymore. I've done a couple of natural history series way back called Nature of Britain and British Arts and Natural History, which were wonderful to make, but they took about two and a half years each to make. And it's a lot of travelling. And the reality of glamorous travelling for TV is airports. Mm. You're sitting in airports far longer than you're sitting with gorillas on a mountain in Uganda. Yeah, you're never um, seeing anything, are you? No, and I'm a realist now. And, you know, I've had some lovely jobs like that in the past, but now I'm happy to do things closer to home. And, you know, I'm getting on a bit. I'm still quite fit. Uh, but I have a wife who's who's retired and, you know, and we have grandchildren and and two daughters and I quite like being with them a lot as well. I don't want to be away all the time, it's not a life as far as I'm concerned. And I think there's something about being a gardener that does root you. You know, it's your piece of earth and I like being on it. Uh, not, not like travel as well, but I'd rather travel with family and friends than, than just on my own, sitting in an airport waiting for a cancelled plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the reality of it really, <laughs> this isn't Does life.
0: Does mm. you know. um, broadcasting do you ever get nervous beforehand?
1: Or? No not nervous, I always get a bit of a lift uh, because you know you're on and the, the, that and the lift or you just sharpen yourself up for it you know it's like like doing today like sitting down in front of an audience I'm not conscious of n- fortunately very lucky nerves or anything like that but you think right come on you know you're, you're entertaining people here or you're informing or whatever just sharpen yourself up you know otherwise it's it's dull and you uh but no i've been very lucky like that and certainly if you're doing something practical um if you are nervous you you, what you really don't want when you're a gardener dealing with sharp knives and secateurs is for the nerves to come out in the hands you know because then it starts to get dangerous Mm -hmm. and i've always been quite lucky like that (laughs) a natural hopefully hopefully (laughs) saves working for a living What?
0: Would you say is the best thing for a novice gardener to start
1: off planting? Oh gosh, depends where they are, what they like, what they entirely down to situation. Is it a shady garden or a sunny garden? Is the soil heavy clay or is it light and sandy? I think the most important thing is is to take time working out what will probably grow best in your garden and what you like, and to make little lists. And I know it sounds like an obvious thing to do, but. You know, it's like when you've got pros and cons. When you're trying to make a decision, you do left-hand side advantages, right-hand side disadvantages all the time. And it's the same when you make a garden, you need a list of what you'd like in it. Do you want a greenhouse? Do you want a pond? Do you want a water feature? Do you want a lawn? Make a list of the things that you'd like. Then look at your garden and watch the path of the sun. See, like with your garden, you know, when you've got it, find out if you, if you can only sit down and have a gin when you come home from work... Mm. Do you like sitting in sun or shade? Where is it at that time of day? Don't go and make your patio where you think it would look nice then discover the sun's actually over in the other corner. And it's just working out all those things, and then you it, take your time working it all out, and then tackle it, but only in bite-sized chunks. And I always say to people, do the bit immediately outside the kitchen window first, because you can see what you've done. It's encouraging you when you go back in. If you do right down the bottom of the garden, you come back in, you say, oh, it still looks terrible it's right down the other end. Things like that, and yes. just tailoring it to your own needs.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Join us next Thursday, where we'll be hearing from global health expert Debbie Shridhar about becoming a personal trainer, guilty pleasures, and romantic fiction. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If so, it really helps to share it with your friends or give it a rating. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Shabie Naharo at Janif. We'll be back next Thursday.